0: We've both been around long enough to remember two thousand and eight, and they were tough times. How do you think, as we approach the end of twenty twenty, this current crisis of COVID and Brexit compare?
1: Well, it's always tempting, isn't it, to compare one financial crisis to another and say, is this one worse? Is this one better? Is it different in in some way? And I think the the real difference with COVID and what's happened in twenty twenty is that same feeling of how on earth is this all going to going going to play out you know there was a real feeling at the beginning of you know th- this is the end of the world we're seeing events happen on financial markets that we've never seen happen before um it was very kind of end of days but at the same time what was so different about that happening this time around because there certainly were echoes of of 2008 and the financial crisis in there for me What was different this time was the social aspect of covering this story because all of a sudden we're all plunged into the uncertainty of not being able to see our colleagues face to face. I think certainly nobody expected um, it to be this long um, in March, I mean, there was just so much information coming through um, about the health aspects, about the markets, about companies, about the government response. It was just the biggest financial story that I think any of us had ever works on in our lives. Yet we were all apart from one another and struggling to work out how to use new technology to communicate, um, you know, whether that's Slack or Google Hangouts, all of these things. Um, it was a very, very steep learning curve, and it was quite bewildering because I can remember I was on the Investor's Chronicle in 2008, so I wasn't on the FT proper. Uh, I can remember being in the office and Simon Thompson, who was my boss at the time, going quite pale and saying – the footsie is dropping like a stone. And I remember him saying that and thinking, gosh, you know, Simon is not somebody who's prone to exaggeration. And he was the person who I kind of clung on to in the office as somebody you just joined, um, literally in 2008, that was the year I joined the Investors Chronicle. I think I was probably still on probation um, when a lot of this was, was happening. And I can remember being very worried and thinking, would I still have a job um, at the end of the month? What's happening to the company, as well as thinking, what's happening to markets? Now, this time around, from a personal point of view, obviously, I'm thinking about my pension, my investments, my job, my employment, what on earth I'm going to advise my readers. Um, of the FT money section. So there was a lot more at stake for me personally, um, because I had had more assets. I had a property. Being a bit older, you might think that I would be able to react more calmly, but I didn't sleep at all properly for at least the first month. I didn't have an unbroken night's sleep because there was just so much more to worry about than just money. There was health. You know, there was seeing my family. My um, father is um, a cancer patient. You know, he's been ticking on for some time. We hope he's still got a few more years to go. But obviously he was in the clinically vulnerable group. We had to work out how to get them groceries so that he didn't have to go to a supermarket, you know, there were all kinds of challenges with this downturn that we just didn't have to think about in the last downturn, but it was kind of restricted to the city and financial markets, whereas this point, it was just all aspects of our lives.
0: And here we are now, you know, towards the end of the year, and we're not doing this face to face as we would have done in the good old days where I could, you know, see how you were responding to my questions. I wonder if one of the big differences that that we've seen is the difference between what in the old world we would have called blue-collar and white-collar workers. I mean, white-collar people of whom I suppose we're two have largely been inside, protected. Proportionately, I think, more of us have hung on to our jobs. And maybe blue-collar workers who would include key workers, suddenly people who delivered things via Amazon, became very, very important, didn't they? I mean, do you think there's a a fresh look, really, on those who have to leave the house to, to go out to work?
1: Well, I think absolutely there is a choice between health and wealth that people are having to make. And if you are in one of those vulnerable groups, somebody who's had to shield, yet you've still got to earn money, What do you do? Do you do what the government tells you and stay indoors? Or do you go out to work? And, you know, I know people who've had to make that choice, people who are running their own businesses, who've received very little by means of of support from the government, have faced horrific choices. And, yes, there are lots of people, because this is where the job creation um, has been, who are now doing supermarket deliveries, whereas before they used to maybe drive a black taxi cab. I always speak to the delivery drivers who come here, because I want to know what they were doing before they became a delivery driver. And a a lot of the case, um, they have moved from other jobs into this job temporarily because that's where the work is. Um, And I do think that people are appreciating key workers, certainly appreciating workers in the health service um, a lot more than they have done because it has just been, Relentless. No, I mean, I I should declare an interest here. My son is a nurse. He's worked throughout COVID doing really long shifts. There is the fear constantly um, of, are you going to get infected? Is something bad going to happen to you? He hasn't lost any colleagues, but he knows others who have. I have to say, I feel immensely privileged as somebody who has been able to spend most of the pandemic indoors at home, feeling relatively safe. Now, on a financial point, there was a paper by Deutsche Bank a couple of weeks ago, which kind of put the question, should people like me and you, who have been largely sitting at home with a pandemic, pay a special one-off tax? Because of the effect that it's had on our finances, if we're still able to work, but we don't really have anything to go out and spend it on. We, We haven't been able to spend money on holidays. We haven't needed to spend money on commuting or on driving. People, obviously, who are still going out to work have had to pick up those expenses, whereas we have been really saving money by not having to do that, not having to buy new outfits to go to work dues in. All of these things, you know, they definitely add up. And I think that the divide between those who have done relatively well financially in this period and those who have not is really starting To open up. And whilst I don't agree with everything that was in that Deutsche Bank paper, I think that that is a very interesting idea of how we could level things up more equally in society, considering how bad things have got for so many.
0: Yeah. On the tales of COVID, which isn't yet over, we've got Brexit now and the potential of crashing out without a deal at the beginning of next year. What do you see? for all of us coming over the next 12 months?
1: I think that with the economy and the state that it's in, it would be crazy if we didn't do a deal. However, I think that at this late stage, the kind of deal that we're going to do isn't going to be the kind of deal that the politicians are going to be crowing about from the hilltops. It's not going to be the greatest deal, but I think even so, in the words of of Noel Edmonds, a deal is better than no deal at all. Now, how we go forward from that, that is the big question. Investor readers of FT Money, they're very interested in UK companies because they have been much more heavily punished in terms of valuations and share prices during the pandemic than more internationally um, focused companies. Even internationally focused companies that are headquartered um, in the UK, listed on the FTSE, um, have had some of that effect. So I know that there's a lot of potential. Bargain hunting going on by the more optimistic readers, but also a lot of diversification going on by the less optimistic ones. And also in terms of technology, that has been the real standout theme. Cash use dropped. Maybe even cash will cease to become a a, a thing in, in, in years to come. I mean, that is a trend that has massively been accelerated by the pandemic. Similarly, online shopping. I don't think that we're going to go back to the levels of cash use and non-online shopping that we did before the pandemic, even if things are to go back to normal and that the hoped-for vaccines produce the results that we all so dearly crave. Because people have got used to living this way, not just for a few weeks or a few months, but nearly a year now. We're changing our habits. We're getting used to doing things differently.
0: It's been an interesting time for you to launch your new financial literacy and inclusion campaign at the FT, which you're actually, for the first time in your history, you're turning formally in, in, into a charity, aren't you? What are you aiming to achieve with that? So the
1: Financial Times has always prided itself on the ability to communicate clearly to readers um, and a growing pool of readers how they should approach the subject of their own money And it may surprise you, Matthew, to know that the five years that I've been editor of FT Money, I've met thousands of of, of readers. We've done lots and lots of events, festivals, and there are a good number of people who work in finance, even work in the city, who are earning lots and lots of money. Who maybe actually neglect their own finances? Dare I say it um, a bit a bit too much? So I've learned as money editor that. There's a huge appetite amongst the FT's own readership to to learn and also just to have things explained in simple language in a way that they can understand rather than the jargon that the financial world just loves to build up around itself. It's really, really key to us to get young people thinking um, about money from an early age because it's not routinely taught in schools, as you know. But there are also lots of people who've left school who haven't had the benefit of learning about money or getting free access to wefty.com to who a little bit of knowledge could really transform the financial aspects of their lives. And coming back to what you were saying about COVID, there's less chance to make a mistake. People have got finances which are Running on thin ice a lot of the time, if you make a bad decision, whether that's taking out a loan and not understanding how much it's costing you, or perhaps if you're young and you're shopping online, looking at these buy now, pay later deals and not realising what you're letting yourself in for, even signing up for a mobile phone contract that's got onerous charges later in life, looking at pensions, investments, charges on investments, these are all areas where If you have a little bit of knowledge and you ask the right questions at the right Mm. time, it could save you a lot of money. And that really is what this campaign is about, broadening access um, to this kind of know-how to people who might not necessarily read the FT, but maybe are the aspiring readers of the future.
0: The ways in which digital advancing into personal finance can enable users to have more more control and therefore sort of more social currency. Some of them are very convincing in that respect, aren't they?
1: I certainly think that there has been a huge amount of innovation in terms of digital financial products. We've had open banking where you can give your consent to share your bank account information with different apps which have been sanctioned by the FCA, the regulator. And certainly I know a lot of young people who have had revelatory experiences after doing that. It's helped them to get a mortgage, cut down endless hours of searching through lots of different products. So there are ways that it can really help you um, if you know what you're doing and just throwing up things in your own data that you maybe didn't really know, particularly seeing as we're all just tapping and spending or using our phones to spend money nowadays and not really realising the magnitude of what that spending adds up to. The problem is engagement. Now, if you're the kind of person who's going to download an app on their phone and look through that and monitor their spending, then you're probably the kind of person who, in the previous world, would have opened their bank statements and had a good look through and seen if there was anything untoward. Now, there are a lot of people who don't want to engage with their finances, either because they find it too stressful, it's too much of a worry, they'd rather sort of not look at it. Um, There's a lot of fear involved, and that has really been magnified at the moment because people just have so much uncertainty in their lives, don't know whether they're coming or going, and it can be very hard for people to try and take control um Of their finances, it's easier sometimes just just to not make a decision and just to let things slide now Unfortunately, it's when you take your eye off the ball like that, you can you know really get into into trouble as my experience going to debt call centers and things like that has has
0: shown me but I wonder if people are sort of thought through what's potentially coming down the line with these twin horrors of covid and brexit i mean on channel 4 news last night there was a story that they ran where they had people who were protesting that they weren't able to get a mortgage because they'd been furloughed and i found myself sort of you know almost yelling at the telly how can you be surprised that a bank doesn't want to lend you hundreds of thousands of pounds if your job is sufficiently precarious that you're furloughed at the moment and when furlough comes to an end you may not have one i wonder I wonder if the penny has really dropped with many people about the difficulties that that lie ahead for next year.
1: Has the penny dropped? Well, I definitely think that there has been a very large insulating effect um, of the furlough scheme and its last minute extension, which unfortunately came too late to save some jobs. But certainly we do have large parts of the UK economy which are in suspended animation, so to speak. And... There is a feeling that things haven't really come out in the wash yet. And obviously, we haven't had a budget for some time. We don't know how taxes are going to have to rise to pay for all of this. But one thing is certain, rise, they will have to, um, because this is a huge, huge um, burden on the public finances, which has you know, never been seen before outside of World War. So compare that to the last financial crisis, my goodness, you know, that is how this one Mm. is going to be different. But of course, the Chancellor has got a very tricky job ahead of him, because, of course, if he squeezes people too hard and taxes individuals and companies too heavily, um, it will have the reverse effect. Um, It's not going to bring in more tax revenues. It will cut off um, avenues of the economic recovery, potentially. We've got to hope that there will be an economic recovery and that the vaccine news that we've heard in the past week mm. will will come good and that there will be an end to living like this, she says from her podcasting cupboard <laughs> um, at home. But even if things do come back, they're going to come back differently. People are only being kept going because of the furlough cash and it won't last forever and there is going to be mm. an economic shock when that all comes to an end. Now, just one... Further points to make on that, people who have lost their jobs already, I've been speaking to FT readers who, for the first time, are having to interact with the benefit system. Older people in their 50s and 60s are finding it really hard to be reabsorbed back into the jobs market. They're either viewed as expensive or past it. They're coming up against ageism in terms of job applications, feel like they're being screened out. Um, I've heard on my podcast Last week, um somebody was even told, "Oh, I don't want to give you the job because you remind me too much of my mum you know this is a an actual real life situation that that people are facing, and of course, the state pension age now it's been equalized um you know you've got to wait until sixty six sixty seven I think I'll have to wait until sixty eight um until I get my state pension, if indeed the state pension still exists in the same form by then, which it may not do all the more reason. Therefore, for me to keep to my principles, saving for retirement, keeping money aside, keeping money invested, not having too much in cash, and just keeping on the long-term focus um, as somebody who is 43 now and will hopefully be able to keep working into her 60s, I know we're not going to look back on the Corona crisis and Brexit as a blip, but I certainly think that you can't treat these things like they are the end of the world, pull all your money out of
0: the markets and stick it under the mattress. I mean, 2008, after all, and the austerity that followed it are not that far away, are they? And austerity did get a kind of rather bad name, didn't it? I wonder if If Rishi Sunak could turn out to be a kind of much more of a Keynesian in keeping those, you know, sluices open and money going into the economy, but the worry always is how on earth, in the long run, if you've got you know structural problems, is it going to get paid back?
1: Well, quite, and one of the, well, you know, one of the real sticking points um, for the chancellor right now is what's happening. In the small business landscape, because there are lots of small businesses who haven't received cash because of the way that companies are set up, whether it's directors who are effectively remunerated via dividends, which the self-employment scheme doesn't recognise as income. So they're excluded from that, whether it's companies that don't have a physical premises, so they've missed out on grants that are delivered via the business rate system, or whether it's people who, through no fault of their own, have failed to qualify um, for certain schemes because they either haven't been self-employed for long enough or they're part of the gig economy, which is 5 million people and falling quite rapidly, I have to say, because so many are looking for PAYE jobs now, the statistics are showing us people who've worked flexibly but have found that this flexibility counts against them um, when it comes to um, the benefits being dished out to the working population under corona. I'm talking about PAYE freelancers. Hundreds of thousands of, of, of people fall into that category, many of them young workers, many of them working in the creative industries, which is how they can get away with it because there's lots of people who want to work in those kinds of jobs. They've got no pension, no holiday pay, no sick pay, um, but they are taxed at source, like employees. It really is exposing the haves and have-nots um, in the system. divide between those who have been helped and those haven't, who haven't. Um, is really quite a yawning gap. And for those who are now dependent on the benefit system, if indeed they qualify, uh, because many of them won't, if they have savings or have already got pensions in payment, that would be enough to to knock their claim out of the water, they are finding that there are lots of holes in the so-called safety net. And that, I think, will be a big question for politics going forward. There's Mm. lots of talk about universal basic income. Would that be a fairer way of doing things? You know, some quite influential people are putting that forward as an argument. There's lots of talk about debt jubilees. You know, these were things that I hadn't really heard talk of in sort of general um, conversations amongst um, colleagues and um, other commentators in the FT, but they are becoming more accepted mainstream ideas that people think we should be exploring and the mm. whole way that the social contract is going to be is going to need to be rewritten to cope with the lasting effects of this crisis not least on people's mental health um, it's yeah. not just their physical health that covid is affecting it's the, the mental health burden yeah. has been absolutely appalling
0: it is interesting isn't it watching us as i'm sure most of us are the latest series of the crown and the events of the early 80s and the the degree of sort of social discontent you could see how that that something like that could come back again if we don't handle it with sufficient sort of skill this time
1: and there's a danger that politicians in Westminster are going to be seen as grossly out of touch I mean it's happened before um it could happen again I think that we need a really strong signal from this party that they do back Entrepreneurs that they do back small businesses because let's not forget you know small businesses are the backbone of the UK economy. So many people who have started their own businesses, you know, they're not they're not wealthy people. I heard a statistic this afternoon from Forgotten Limited, which is the campaign group um, for people in limited companies who've struggled to access government support. Now the average. Um, annual income of people who are members of that group who are company directors. It's not hundreds of thousands of pounds. Um, It's around £35,000 a year. So they're not even higher rate taxpayers, you know, they'd have to be earning £50,000 for that to be the case. So these are small businesses, the strivers. If we forget about them, if the politicians in Westminster forget about them, then I think that they're, will be big consequences, both to the levelling up agenda, which I thoroughly support, but also the political landscape in the future.